2: In crypto Twitter, what happens is once you exceed the Dunbar number, especially if you exceed it by orders of magnitude, then everybody wants you to conform to their norms as they see them. You can't please everybody, but you can annoy everybody at scale.
1: <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Dr. Stephanie Murphy. I'm one of the hosts of the show. Today, joining me, Jonathan Mohan. hey. Hey. And of course, Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Adam is sick, so I'm filling in for him today. And I'm going to be leading our discussion for this episode, which is episode number 428. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by Brave.com and etoro.com and can be found at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com, Coindesk.com, or our free, privately managed subscriber feed at ltbshow.com. So today, We're going to be continuing our discussion about decentralization from a philosophical perspective, bringing up historical as well as modern examples. Now, last time we were talking about pre-technology examples of decentralization, for example, in the governance of different tribal societies and how easy or how difficult they were to conquer and maybe how easy they became to conquer when a decentralized organization was made more centralized through the use of gifts and bribes. Today, we're going to be applying those ideas and concepts to our modern world. Last time on the show, we were talking about the example of the Spanish conquistadors who were going into Central and South America, and they were conquering various tribes. And we talked about the difference between what happened when they encountered the Aztecs and the Incans, who were quite centralized in their form of society and how it was organized, and the Apaches, who were actually quite decentralized. And then how that changed with the introduction of gifts from the US government that introduced more hierarchy into the Apache society. Jonathan, do you want to recap that? Because I know you were excited about talking about this.
3: Yeah, I'm always fascinated to try to understand where the compromises are at a consensus and community level from proof of work and proof of stake. And when we were talking about the Apache and how their culture actually was what changed and what led to them. Losing their anti fragility, um, specifically through the idea of giving a respected person money that they then can dole out, and then passively centralizing them through that, it sort of reminded me a lot of the Federate Treasury model, that's sort of emblematic of a lot of proof of stake chains. And I was just thinking, what the rest of the podcast thoughts would be on proof of stake, and maybe it's a lot more like, you know, the Incans than the Apache, and uh, that's not a bad thing. I just thought it was an interesting analogy.
2: What do you mean by federated treasury in a proof-of-stake model? Could you elaborate on that a bit, Jonathan?
3: So you have um, protocols such as Dash or EOS where they have block producers or witnesses. The thing about all the proof-of-stake blockchains is they call the exact same thing different things in all of their systems. And the block rewards are from the people who are staking who are the witnesses or block producers in that environment. And typically, they will have a percentage of the block reward go not just to the federates who are maintaining consensus, but will actually have a grant proposal system to be able to actually vote on paying out to developers or to community-related activities or to bug fixes. So it's a pretty cool model, and it's one that is interesting, especially with Dash in that Dash very seriously took the idea of being a decentralized application. And so when they were thinking of a foundation, they ate their own dog food into proceduralizing their foundation into the protocol rather than, you know, creating a legal entity and then just giving it 12% of the protocol. The protocol's treasury, like the model that Ethereum took. So there are pros and cons to every sort of decision. And I'm always fascinated to think through what are problems that we don't yet know are real problems because it hasn't actually been around long enough for it to manifest in a materially bad way. And so thinking about this treasury model and the way that the Apaches were so anti-fragile for as long as they were until the system was imposed on them, it's just interesting to hear what you guys think is the long-term viability of that type of model in a consensus environment for its long-term ability to not become centralized.
1: The historical example that we were talking about on the last show was that the Apache were a tribe where there really was no central leader. There were just kind of respected people in the community. So the Apache didn't really have any centralized leadership in their governance structure. There were basically just respected people within the community that were listened to by others. And if they said something that was kind of eh, they were not listened to as much and they could fall out of favor and other people could rise up and become respected. And so in this way, this made them a really decentralized organization where. If you took out one so-called leader, that was fine because basically like a starfish grows back an arm. They could kind of replace it. And you could even take out several of the leaders and it would still not matter to their system. It wasn't going to take the whole system crumbling down if you whacked someone over the head. And the analogy, of course, is the starfish and the spider. If you cut off one of the arms of a starfish, it can grow it back. It might even grow two you can cut off multiple points of a starfish and the starfish will still live and maybe you'll even end up with two. But in a spider, if you whack it on the head, it's gonna go splat and the whole thing comes crumbling down. And we were talking about how this happened in Bitcoin to Gavin Andreessen, who was a very respected member of the community, said some stuff that people didn't believe and then kind of fell out of favor and was listened to a lot less than he used to be. So this was kind of like analogous to the Apache community elders who were interchangeable based on whether people believed them and gave them the credibility.
2: Crypto Twitter really operates a bit like that. I mean, there are no leaders, although certain people tried to be leaders in the crypto Twitter space, especially in Bitcoin. And as a result, the favorability of various personalities on crypto Twitter rises and falls by what they say and is not in any way fixed. And so that system makes it much more robust. It's very difficult to hijack that community.
1: Absolutely, but the U.S. government was doing an interesting little experiment. I don't know if they really planned this or coordinated it, but somehow it worked where they were able to centralize the Apache society by gifting cattle to the tribal elders and then letting those people distribute the cattle within the community. So you can see that this gives them now a source of power and there could be bickering and fighting that comes about as a result of how these cattle are distributed. So imagine if you gave Pomp or Cobra on crypto Twitter with free Bitcoin so that they could choose who they give it out to. Suddenly somebody has a lot more power and there's an incentive to fight about that. What do you guys think?
3: Well, I think it's not just that they have the ability to dole out resources, but then infrastructure and social dynamics around the fact that that person has money gets created and then once that person leaves those shelling points and those structures and those dynamics are there and it's easier to just put another person there than it is to just remove all of those structures that were built around the fact that that person was there
2: right so basically a pyramid grows and there's a spot at the top of the pyramid and even if you take out the person who's at the spot there's still a spot there that if somebody else steps into that spot, they still occupy that position in the hierarchy. So you've changed the structure. And it's not just about the person who's at the peak of that structure. It's about the imposition of that structure itself. Well, on crypto Twitter, you could say the same thing applies with the accumulation of followers, because that follows a power law distribution, meaning that people who have a lot of followers gain a lot of followers. And the more you have, the more you gain on a daily basis. And as a result, that concentration causes concentration. But the difference is that if the person who has all of those followers leaves or stops speaking, someone else can't step into that space and essentially inherit the structure of all of those followers. So that's one key and fundamental difference that keeps it less susceptible to that takeover.
1: Right. So how do we tie this back to the example that Jonathan brought up of proof of stake systems that are distributing rewards to early people and then they have a lot of power in the proof of stake system of that coin?
3: To correct myself for a moment, there are some proof of work systems like Zcash, which famously has a block reward allocation scheme for developer grants as well.
2: And a very controversial proposal now to introduce this exact scheme to Bitcoin Cash. This controversial proposal to be hard fork in March. Well, actually, maybe it's a soft fork. But basically, if it is a soft fork, it's a core soft fork where the miners will purposely orphan any blocks that don't include. I believe it's a 12%. Grant to a Hong Kong legal entity that acts as a foundation to dole out grants. This is exactly that in a proof of work system in Bitcoin.
1: Right. The question is always who gets to decide where these resources go and how does that impact the system? Is it a centralizing effect? I think you could make the argument that yes. And of course, this is what the starfish and the spider is pointing out.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely a centralizing effect. And that's even demonstrated by the way that these schemes or mechanisms for grants are designed in the first place. Sometimes it's developers exerting their power through the code to create grants for developers. That's effectively what happens with Ethereum. Other times it's miners enriching themselves or creating these kinds of grants through the mining mechanism. and. Vitalik Buterin has made the argument, why should it be miners and not developers? Why shouldn't developers generate grants and do that? In either case, though, it certainly has a centralizing influence. Can we
1: look at this happening on maybe a meta level as well with the different cryptocurrency communities? So, for example, people support cryptocurrencies and the communities that go behind them. When they believe in the ideas and when they believe that it's a successful technology that's going to continue into the future, unless they're scammers, right, and they're pumping it. But most of the time they're behind it because they believe it's going to succeed in the long run. And so cryptocurrencies like that that have public support and trust could become the tribal elders of cryptocurrencies themselves. And they can be replaceable and they can change and they can fluctuate over time.
2: Right, which creates the other interesting thing that relates to what Jonathan said, which is once you have such a leadership position, for example, once you have a cryptocurrency that has acquired over time the essential elements of a reserve currency in the crypto space, has behaved as or fills the role and utility of a reserve currency, if that currency was to fail or get out of the way, all of the structure and shelling points that have concentrated that function of reserve currency remain. And what will happen is that any exchanges or users, merchants, etc., who need some kind of reserve currency to act as the main liquidity mechanism in the crypto space will simply replace it with something that is equivalent or feels equivalent.
3: It's sort of funny how there's a yin-yang to everything where in the early days of Bitcoin, we said that the genie was out of the bottle even if Bitcoin were to die because enough people understood what decentralized technology and ownership of their own money meant, that even if they could kill Bitcoin, an entirely new technology that fit the requirements of this new market would come about. And it's sort of funny that there's a centralizing force pushing back on us with the exact same sort of properties.
1: What do you mean by a centralizing force pushing back on us?
3: Oh, it's this notion of people creating products that centralize, and then even if the product dies, the market forces and actors around it are maintaining that shelling point and will reinstance something to replace it. That same argument as to why the market and community around decentralized money would persist even outside of a single product is also what may be centralizing us in things like tether or in things like grant proposals.
2: And why the centralized alternatives to the centralized currency have much more staying power, because, again, the entire world financial infrastructure is concentrated around those concepts. And even if the dollar went away, it would just be replaced by, I don't know, a digital yuan or something else. It wouldn't be replaced by a decentralized alternative.
3: The dollar would be replaced by the dollar, because a dollar is always a dollar. And what people forget is there's like 80 instances of products that are called the dollar and like a couple hundred products in the past hundred years have used that same name. Right. And the same
2: argument that we make for Bitcoin is that if it gets taken down, it gets replaced. And the easiest thing to name its replacement is Bitcoin.
1: So this actually sounds like a good lead in to talk about the cathedral and the bazaar. Andreas, do you want to explain that concept?
2: So, The Cathedral and the Bazaar is a collection of essays that became a book written by Eric S. Raymond back in 2001, late 90s, early 2000. I think it was published as a book in 2001. The Cathedral and the Bazaar is a treatise on open source systems development written during the birth time of the Linux operating system and also the real coming of age of the open source software revolution, the moment when open source started spreading everywhere and became an accepted and more broadly understood methodology for building software to compete against proprietary and closed systems. So Eric Raymond wrote a series of essays that then became a book about the different model of developing software. And he compared the traditional model to the building of a cathedral where there's a plan, there's a fixed architecture, there's someone in charge, and permissioned workers come in and they build according to the plan. Versus a bazaar, an open marketplace in the medieval bazaar style, where there isn't any plan where you go up and you start erecting a stall, and the best place to erect a stall is next to another stall and in front of an open patch that looks like a passageway for buyers. And as soon as you do that, you extend the row of stalls, creating the most obvious place to erect the next stall. And organically, the bazaar grows out from several different points and sprawls without any central planning. And this is the same kind of thing as to the starfish and the spider. Where the Starfish and the Spider is talking about the hierarchy of organizations, the Cathedral and the Bazaar is talking about the architecture of creative work and the communities and organizations that are producing software. But very, very similar mentality. And I think it proceeds by many years, the Starfish and Spider book and concept.
1: I really like the analogy to building. Animals is also a good analogy, too, because life kind of Starts and then it keeps going and perpetuates itself. But buildings also is a great analogy too, because it's building software, it's building infrastructure, it's even building a community and building support and integration into the world.
2: Yeah. When it comes to biology, the starfish and spider is kind of a nice compact analogy because it is a much more visually appealing. The shape is similar. But to me, what's happening in the crypto space goes much, much beyond something that is so similar in shape. I think of biological examples of ants and uh, fungi. So I think the development of crypto is much more like a fungus, a mycelium, which is a multi-organism system that involves multiple layers of symbiotic organisms that grow into and around each other. And similar to how an ant colony operates, where it's an amorphous shape, not only without center, but also without shape. And, you know, when we talk about cutting off a starfish or a leg of a starfish or something like that, think about it instead of trying to stomp out an ant colony. You're not even changing the shape, really. It was a blob. It's now a blob.
1: Yes, it flows around you like water. Can ants like change their roles depending on what's needed? I think some of them can.
2: Yes, some can. And I believe they also change physiologically.
1: And also with mycelia, I like that you brought that up because you might walk through a forest and you might see some mushrooms coming up from the ground or growing on a tree or something like that. But what you don't see is that there's this microscopic network of tissue underneath the surface of the ground or underneath the tree bark that is made of connections among the cells of that fungus. It's almost like roots and it sends out these projections below the surface of the soil or that tree that it's growing on. And there's miles and miles of connected networks that you don't even appreciate because they're invisible. I think I did a show once called The Internet of Mushrooms. It's almost like that. They can actually sense nutrients. Fungal colonies on one side of a forest can sense the presence of nutrients in the soil or whatever they're growing on. And they can communicate that to other parts of the fungal network of the same species of fungus or maybe even multiple species of fungus within that forest. It's really amazing.
3: And just like the blockchain community, it's a superstructure. It's sort of a super organism that's networked. And like all plants in the mycelium network, if you speed it up 100x, you could almost think it was an intelligence, just like Bitcoin consensus.
2: There's some interesting, fascinating studies where they use a mycelium to map city structures, they did this with a replica of Tokyo, where they placed food in the major population centers or the main commercial districts, and then they put mycelium in the main residential districts. And then as the mycelium grew, it built a replica of the rail and subway system of Tokyo, because it found simply the most efficient way to connect commuters to their workplace by replicating that process. If you're interested in this topic even further, there's another great book, we might as well add it to this conversation, called Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets. Oh, Stamets is the expert on this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a great book and it's about the internet-like properties of mycelium and how it ties together the biological world around us. He calls it the mushroom internet or the internet of fungi. It's a fascinating concept and a great book. Two weeks ago, there was a paper published about how to use a similar mechanism to ant colony pathfinding using a pheromone trail to do pathfinding and routing on the Lightning Network, where nodes on the Lightning Network exchange pheromone signatures, and based on the proximity to specific pheromones, you can find a route through the network without having to know the structure of the entire network.
1: Another example of that is, I know some of the companies that are working on self-driving car technology study bees and the way that they fly and arrange themselves in flight and communicate flight directions to each other to keep cars in a flock, you know, that doesn't crash into each other, but knows where the other ones are going.
2: Well, now that we've gone over this whole range of biological equivalents to network organization... Back to the topic of hierarchy and structure, one of the fascinating things about human societies and hierarchical structures that we've built is that while they are mechanisms for massively creating efficiency of scale for concentration of wealth and resources, which certainly benefits some members of the species, They're not commonly found in nature. And the reason they're not commonly found in nature is because such structures are fragile. So over uh, long periods of time, they fail to scale. They fail to survive various adverse effects or calamities that might strike parts of the structure. And so nature has selected out that model. Nature does not build highly, highly centralized structures across entire species because that's dangerous and those systems don't survive very long, but people do. And we build fragile systems. Of course, that's a local versus global effect, right? The entirety of humanity is not hierarchical. The entirety of humanity is a flat amorphous interacting blob. It's only parts of it within that blob that are highly structured and hierarchical, and those parts are fragile.
3: I like to think of centralization, if we're talking about biological equivalents, as smallpox, which is the only reason humanity hasn't died from smallpox is smallpox requires, I believe it's 200,000 people within 14 days of transmission period in order to keep killing. And it just kills us out until we're so dispersed and so disconnected that it can't propagate anymore. And I think that centralization to humanity is sort of like that, that every now and then there's too many of us that believe in it, but it sort of makes its own undoing. (laughs) And then we go back to our fragmented worlds of seeing each other as equal.
1: Yeah, well, I think you can make the argument that there are at least some systems in nature that have some element of centralization, because centralized systems have some advantages Like, for example, efficiency, that's possible that a centralized system could be more efficient than a less centralized system. And decentralized systems have advantages too, like anti-fragility and robustness, as we've talked about. And so there's always going to be an evolutionary tension between the two. And it can be kind of a sliding scale, like it's not necessarily a binary of something is either centralized or decentralized. There's going to be a little bit of wiggle room in between.
2: I think it's also important to be careful when drawing biological analogies across species that are very, very different. And that has happened a lot in anthropology. A lot of concepts that have become very popular, especially among certain circles regarding biology of Homo sapiens, have been drawn from conclusions that do not carry at all. For example, the alpha versus beta analogy from wolves which may apply to small bands of roaming predators with massive, massive hunting grounds and no permanent resources, but has not really been shown in social species at all, other than one failed example, which was the Goodall experiment with chimps. And in that case, it's very similar to the example that we mentioned before with the centralization of Apache tribes, where the experimenters in the Goodall experiment came in and started giving bananas in locked cages in central locations to chimps that were roaming species and foraging species, causing an abundance of cheap and yummy food to be located in an area where the chimps had to come together and fight for the food, causing them to change their society and have these very violent and warlike features emerge that, don't actually replicate in the wild, even among chimps.
1: Another great example of that is a lot of modern dog training, especially the punishment and fear-based methods of training dogs, has been based on the idea that dogs are just like wolves and they're in this dominant struggle. Where domestic dogs, the science is showing recently that they're actually really not like wolves in that way and they respond much better to positive methods of training and reinforcement that doesn't rely on fear. Are you sick of creepy ads following you across the internet? Then check out Brave. Brave is a free, next-generation web browser that's pioneering a better internet with privacy by default. Using Brave browser feels a lot like using Chrome, except without any of the annoying ads or creepy behavioral tracking. You can import your bookmarks with one click and continue to use all of your favorite Chrome extensions. It's blazing fast, performs up to six times faster than competitors, and it gives you the option to opt in to earn rewards by viewing ads, which you can then use to support your favorite content creators. It's so easy to make the switch. Go to brave.com slash LTB and switch to Brave today. You can feel good about using Brave, knowing that you're helping to restore your privacy and fix the internet. That's brave.com slash LTB, brave.com slash LTB and switch today. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over a trillion dollars in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at etoro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Build your crypto portfolio the smart way. eToro is crypto trading made easy. One more time, that's E-T-O-R-O dot com. I did want to talk about some of the other concepts from the Starfish and Spider that we teased at the beginning of the show. There's a couple of ideas that the book brings up A decentralized organization, it says, is standing on five different legs and like a starfish can lose a leg or two and still survive. But when you have all the legs working together, the organization can really take off. So I'm going to read you the examples of what the legs are and then we can talk about each one. Leg one is called circles. Leg two is the catalyst. Leg three is ideology. And leg four is the pre-existing network. And I don't have leg five in front of me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: We're getting the fifth leg. Hang on one second. Let's just take leg one.
1: Leg one is circles. Circles are important for nearly every decentralized organization that we've talked about. Once you join a circle, you're equal with all the other members of the circle. It is then up to you to contribute to the best of your ability. Now, this is reminiscent of the internet. The internet has allowed circles to become virtual, so you can join them easily and seamlessly. And most of us are members of some kind of decentralized circle or another. Circles can gain freedom and flexibility when they go virtual, but being in the physical presence of other participants can also add a dimension of closeness and trust, and a sense of ownership emerges. So instead of top-down rules, circles depend on norms. The norms become the backbone of the circle, and that's what holds it together. Members enforce the norms with one another, and as a result of self-enforcement, norms can gain even more power than rules. And as the norms of the circle develop and members spend more time together, they begin to trust each other and are motivated to contribute to the best of their abilities to support the health of the circle. So is this like what we were talking about before with crypto Twitter? Do you guys think of that as a circle? I do.
2: Yeah, several overlapping circles, but When you started reading that, the first thing that came to mind for me was the peer-to-peer network that underlies pretty much every cryptocurrency. So the nodes that you run or your wallet is part of a circle. And sometimes that's even a small circle. So you talk to eight peers on average in your immediate circle, and then the broader circle is all of the other peers on the network. And in those networks, you are peers. So you have equal footing. And you're following norms, but these are encoded as rules, not just norms. So there are rules of behavior. And if you deviate from those rules of behavior, your node gets kicked out of the circle. It basically gets banned for 24 hours and nobody will talk to you.
1: The interesting thing I think about with circles is something called the Dunbar number, which we've talked about on the show before, but it's basically a thing in human psychology where we only have space for so many social connections. We can only keep track of the accounting of our relationship with so many people at once. We only have room for about 150 people in our circle of acquaintances that we could know and know whether it's safe to trust them or to collaborate with them. And with close acquaintances and close friends and family, it's even less than that. It's maybe down to about 15. And now as the internet has grown, we've been granted the ability to join much larger circles. Do you have more than 150 connections on your favorite social network? I know
2: I do. (laughs) And it turns into hell really, really quickly.
1: Exactly. This breaks down when the circle gets too big because people no longer can keep track of all these other people who are in the circle. And so that trust starts to break down. The enforcement of norms becomes more difficult to do. I guess, and to keep track of whether people are following the norms of the circle becomes more difficult. And so when circles get too big, they can sort of fall apart or maybe fragment into smaller circles. You guys think that's a problem in the crypto community? Maybe with the software, like what you were talking about with the nodes, Andreas, this is not a problem because it's not relying on human connections. It's just baked into the software protocol.
3: I think that because it's money and because it's networked in a very weird way, we're more connected than normal networks are. I think the fact that there's a monetary element to it means that by being a Bitcoiner, you're more connected than if you were just a Facebooker or just a Googler or something. I think, I think there's something weird about how money-driven crypto is that then makes us even more connected than we would be in any other type of network.
1: But there is a human element in there too, which you know, we see when the crypto community starts to fragment into different forks.
2: Well, that's a demonstration of the circle having so many participants that we start to disagree over what the norms are. And when those norms are encoded as software rules that are rigid and you can't add nuance to them, that will cause fragmentation into multiple circles where some people decide that they're going to follow a different set of norms. And because the rules are rigid, that creates a completely separate, hardly touching circle. Crypto Twitter is very different, though. In crypto Twitter, what happens is once you exceed the Dunbar number, especially if you exceed it by orders of magnitude, then everybody wants you to conform to their norms as they see them and then bashes you for not because it's impossible. So no matter what you say, you violated somebody's norms and that's the response you're going to get.
1: It becomes a Venn diagram very quickly where you can be caught in the middle and smushed. So <laughs> you can't please everybody. It's the
2: solution to just fragment. You can't please everybody, but you can annoy everybody at scale.
3: (laughs) The thing that I find most interesting about social media is as a society and as people who understand social dynamics, our society is built on the fact that basically you're the most socially connected you will ever be in your life when you're 18 to 25. The number of people you have in your social network, the amount of connections that you touch point with, is the most robust in that period of your life. And then by the time you go to 40 or 50, you're transitioning from a growth and learning into a maintenance mode. And I think that one of the weirdest things that's happened is in interconnecting the rest of the world with the same level of connectivity of an 18 to 25 year old, we are sort of hacking their brain into thinking they're in maintenance mode when they really should be framing back down to like growth and burn. And so I think that people apply far too much value to these social connected frameworks because they haven't down ticked from, I only have five connections I need to maintain. I can't let them go to, oh, that's right. I'm 18 again. And I just went by that clubhouse and that guy's an idiot and this guy's an idiot, but who cares? Because why do their opinions matter to begin with?
1: This reminds me of the phrase, it's easier to carry four quarters than a hundred pennies. It's a quality versus quantity thing. And I think we have to acknowledge that Our brains are only meant for so many connections. Like this is just human nature. And I guess not everything about human nature needs to be deterministic, needs to determine our fate. We can definitely evolve beyond some things that are human nature and try to get better. But maybe the connection issue isn't one of them. Maybe we should just go with it and try not to maintain too many connections and just focus on smaller circles. Jonathan, you were saying you're socially connected, but not on Twitter. I would say I'm not on Twitter and I'm not very socially connected. (laughs) (laughs) And that's by choice. This is like a good thing. My life has become more simple since I've embraced an attitude of social and connection minimalism.
3: (laughs) You're like my Bitcoin yogi. Once a year, you come down from the mountain and I get to experience you and understand your wisdom that's disconnected from the troubles of the insanity of the rest of us.
1: Thank you, that's an awesome compliment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And my life is insanity in a bottle because I'm the opposite extreme on both of those. I'd like to connect this back a bit to the topic we were talking about before, because for me, fundamentally, hierarchies are trying to solve the Dunbar problem by layering it. So you still have the fundamental Dunbar connectivity and trust problem. What you do is you create layers that each scale to the Dunbar number and create a pyramid all the way up to the top. And this has been an effective solution for humanity to solve the issues of trust and communication at scale greater than the Dunbar number, but it brings some very, very nasty side effects, including fragility, but also concentration of power, corruption, communication bottlenecks, inability to make decisions, and also how decisions made at one end of the scale do not feel the impact that occurs at the other end of the scale. So One end of the scale has all the decision-making power, but none of the impact. And the other end has all of the impact, none of the power. Those are the disadvantages of hierarchies, but they solve the scaling issue. Now, How do decentralized organizations overcome the Dunbar number limitation, extend the circles of trust, allow them to scale, encode norms as rules and software so as we can maintain broader circles of trust and allow us to have the same level of scaling and efficiency that you have in a centralized organization without any of the side effects of corruption, power-hungry leaders, and distance from decisions.
1: Decentralized organizations are solving the scaling problem in a different way, and I think that's good. But There is always a little bit of a human element because humans are the ones who create the code. And so you can make a system that's trustless and that has the norms built into the software code, but you still get fragmentation because then humans start to disagree because the ideology that inspired the writing of that code becomes different for some people and then they splinter off. And so that actually leads into another leg of the starfish, which is ideology. And ideology is important when we talk about circles because this is the glue that holds the circle together and that holds decentralized organizations together. It's a shared philosophy or shared ideas among members of the circle. And so, you know, this is kind of obvious that there's definitely ideology in every community, including cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. But do you guys want to talk about what ideologies were important early on versus what's important today? And, you know, how has that changed? And what other projects are using different ideologies or the same ones as Bitcoin?
3: I would just like to say first that in open source, it's a very weird thought for someone who hasn't been within it to think about how you compete or how you engage in an environment where everything that you have as a product is out there for your competitors to copy. So the funny thing is when you work on an open source project and you look at your competitors, you're not competing on them on technology. Because if you or they solve a problem, you would just copy it. You're competing on them with ideology. And so what ends up happening is you end up being distinctly different to the extent that their ideology would preclude them evaluating your solution as valuable to them. And so it's this really weird sort of manifestation of the circle and the ideology that you're talking about, that a lot of these systems have solutions that would work in the other systems. And it's on the basis of ideology, which is why they're not copying each other or they're not stealing, quote unquote. They're actually maintain their distinctiveness as different products. And so it's really interesting to see the starfish in that way manifest as well.
2: When it comes to crypto, our ideologies are also encoded as rules in the system. And then you have this kind of chicken and egg issue, which is do the rules derive from the ideology or is the ideology simply reflecting what the rules created? That's the original vision construction versus emergent consensus construction, which we feel intently in Bitcoin. But the bottom line is that where crypto Twitter can be incredibly fragmented because of differences in ideology, the networks that are part of the system are much more stable and much more clear-cut because that ideology has been encoded into rigid rules. It's very hard for me to tell on crypto Twitter what the principles that someone wants to follow are, but I can tell you exactly which blockchain a node is following and which rules it's agreeing to by following that blockchain. So that's really the interesting thing, is that we've taken ideology and encoded it into software rules. And then we get to argue, do the rules correctly represent the origin and initial ideology, or are we trying to make up ideology as we go based on what the rules are emerging in the real world and how the interaction of rules and people causes effects? As Adam would point out, one of the big ones there, is it store value or medium of exchange? Is a decentralization the fundamental principle or ease of use And on those ideological distinctions, you then have rules that try to follow one or the other ideology, and each of the rule makers is going to claim that their rules best represent the original ideology.
1: I want to talk about another leg, which is the idea of a catalyst, and this is distinct from a CEO. A catalyst in open organizations is someone who initiates a circle and then fades into the background. The catalyst is a great word because they get it going, the formation of a new circle or a new fragment, and then they become less important. Now, in the Apache circles, the Natan or the community elder played the role of the catalyst. They could lead by example, but they were never forcing their views on other people. And the same pattern seems to appear with decentralized organizations. There's a catalyst that gets it going and then fades back into the shadows kind of like Satoshi or other people who have come after Satoshi. And once letting go of this leadership role, the catalyst is basically giving ownership and responsibility to the members of the circle. So they're starting it and then they're stepping back, knowing when the time is right to retire. So Satoshi is the obvious example of a catalyst. But is the crypto world still using catalysts? Like, where do we see them today?
3: That's a great question.
2: I think one of the elements in crypto that is interesting is because there's significant power that derives from the fact that we're talking about networked money. Some of the people who pretend to be catalysts are actually seeking to become permanent leaders.
1: Or CEOs, as we'll talk about in a minute.
2: Yes, or CEOs, exactly. So they preach the catalyst gospel but refuse to let go or let go in some ways and act from the shadows in order to influence the circle and maintain a role of power i think satoshi's anonymity and departure was the best example of a catalyst and it hasn't really been replicated except with very very few and minor exceptions i would say mimble wimble is one of them
3: I'm in constant respect and amazement out of an example that I think is worth mentioning, which is Yifu Gao. So Yifu back in 2013 created the first ASIC and could have cornered the entire market and basically been a Bitmain, but at the beginning, not four years later. And both explicitly wanted to distribute the hash rate fairly, but then also chose to not continue doubling down on that exponential of that ramp up in ASICs to be the supermajority of the hash rate. And so to the extent that Satoshi walked away to not corrupt a system, I don't know if Bitcoin could have as robustly weathered the storms of demonstrating decentralization if Yifu didn't demonstrate integrity in that way when he did. So I do think it is few and far between, but we have some great champions of that ethos in the Bitcoin community and in its history as well.
1: Yeah, I still remember this picture of him sitting with this machine. It was amazing. You know, like the first computers, how they took up a room like this was pretty big, too.
3: (laughs) I just remember him like getting it from all ends because he was selling products for five thousand dollars that were making people 30 grand a week. And so he was both evil because he wasn't getting to them fast enough and evil because he was making them a millionaire. (laughs) Yeah, I would certainly think of him as a very high respected catalyst in my mind for the success of Bitcoin.
1: Let me read you a couple of contrast comparisons and contrasting between the catalyst versus the CEO. A CEO is a boss on top of a hierarchy. A catalyst is a peer, so an equal part of the circle. A CEO derives their authority from a command and control kind of ethic, and a catalyst is deriving it from trust. A CEO is rational, and a catalyst is emotionally intelligent. A CEO is leading by power. And a catalyst is inspiring people to follow them, so they're inspirational. So I like those comparison and contrasting to help us define what we really mean by someone who is a catalyst. And when you start to read those things, you do kind of realize how rare it is to actually get a true catalyst. It's hard to think of an example besides Satoshi and Ifu, as you mentioned. Being a catalyst is, I think of as, as a job that nobody wants or only an introvert would want. You know, you're not going to be in the spotlight. You're going to maybe receiving some heat or hated. it even. It's not a well-paid role. You don't get really compensated at all for it. Whereas a CEO, you are getting credit, money, praise for that role. And that's very attractive to some people. But you could argue that since power corrupts, that's not who you want in positions of power. You must play the role of a catalyst because whatever it is must happen and you benefit along with others. Right, so a catalyst does it not because they want power or they want to get something from it, but because they're called to it. If they don't do this, then nobody's going to receive the benefit of this amazing thing. They're kind of dragged into it, whereas a CEO is driving the process, is leading a charge, is making a career choice.
2: Yeah, and that's why in crypto, of course, eventually what emerged was... 100,000 CEOs and five catalysts.
3: One of the most shocking demonstrations of that to me, I think I've said it before, is I went to one of the first IBM Fabric conferences. And it was occurring the same time an Ethereum conference was going to, but I decided to go just to check it out. There were 500 people in that room who all had bosses and all had CEOs who were paying them to be there. And the moment it hit five o'clock, I couldn't find a single person to get dinner with.
1: So here's a question. Does money change a catalyst into a CEO? Can a catalyst be corrupted into a CEO?
3: I'm of the philosophy that money doesn't change people. It lets them be more of who they are. And so if what you wanted to do was the thing that brought you fire and passion and meaning, money just means you can do more of it. But having the ability to financially not do it anymore just demonstrated that it was never about that for you to begin with. I think... Even if
2: you start out as a catalyst, it's very, very difficult to maintain perspective the more money is at stake. And if your comfort level in life changes because of more money, that does change your perspective. So yeah, absolutely. Catalysts can be and are frequently corrupted.
1: Sometimes when you look at an organization, it can be kind of hard to tell. Like, are you looking at a starfish or a spider? And what are some questions we can ask that help define that?
2: Squish the head. You'll find out quickly.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, that's one of them, right? If you take out the head or the central figure, does it die out? And chances are, if that's the case, it's a spider. And then what about does it even have a head? Does it have headquarters? Does it have a person in charge?
2: Does it have a CEO? Yeah, Bitcoin is all hindquarters, no headquarters.
3: (laughs) I like it. But I also think like a very easy heuristic that doesn't involve destroying anything is just passion. You can tell when people are there because they have passion. Like the IBM conference. Yeah. I actually had dinner with a gentleman who was at Fabric, and he said that the dinner that he had with us, we all exuded passion, and that at work, his boss says that he has such passion. But when he uses it, it's actually in his evaluation as a detrimental statement, not a positive statement. He's too passionate. He's too stuck in a certain framework. Wow, That to me is sort of demonstrative of like, no, this needs to be a job versus we want to change the world.
1: Why does he still work there? Or does he still work (laughs) there?
3: Hey, you know, a lot of people have really nice option plans that they're waiting to exercise.
2: Yeah, that's the corruption problem. And really expensive mortgages that they have to fulfill. Mm, That's another. That's the real passion killer, which in many ways is a deliberate feature of many cultures, is that if you are a slave to debt, It doesn't matter how passionate you are. You're two paychecks away from being homeless, destitute, and destroying your family and your life, in which case you will do exactly what your boss tells you.
0: I view Mimble Wimble as truly a catalyst-initiated project where the catalyst actually disappeared after sparking the idea. You know, they lit the fire and then they were gone and other people kind of took over. Maybe they came back and maybe they're still working on it, but we have no idea. It's a Satoshi-type situation. You compare that against something like Counterparty And Counterparty was one of the kind of really early token protocols built on top of Bitcoin. It started with three pseudonymous catalysts who built the original software without taking any money and then basically set up a system where nobody had to trust them. You literally destroyed your Bitcoin rather than giving it to them as a way to prove your sort of commitment to the early software and to get some tokens. But then as a way to build legitimacy for that project, they revealed their names and they got involved effectively as not really CEOs, but they sort of lost that catalyst part that they had. They kept it in some ways, but they transitioned as a way to try and push the project forward where perhaps it couldn't if there were no real names attached to it.
3: I see that, but also Next never did that, and they failed also on that merit. I do think, though, that specifically that's a little bit more of a nuanced problem, but Next and Counterparty had the same problem, but in different ways. Next thought they were cute, so they only raised like 30 Bitcoin. Because they wanted to maintain the percentages for the first like 10 people. And then Counterparty, I've not seen a single protocol that uses Demirage successfully. And I've not seen a single protocol that uses the destruction of money as a method of outcompeting those who don't do that. And so when Counterparty launched, they got $50,000 in donations. And I think it was $1.2 million in burnt Bitcoin. And one would have hoped it would have been the inverted amounts. <laughs> and so When that's the economics you're dealing with and the other guys just go out there, run their mouth and then raise 18 million. I mean, there's just a lot of incentives that you have
0: to outcompete with that. It's an interesting point, especially when you compare it against the environment that these projects launch into is really, really important to how they are able to incubate. Bitcoin had the advantage of being the first thing to come out. And so in large ways, it entered an environment that had no relevant competition. And that just hasn't been true for any project that's come since then. And I think that that's also played a large role in terms of why we haven't seen as many catalysts. The catalyst was to start the cryptocurrency movement in large part. And once you had that, then sure, you could make an argument in favor of doing other things, but it was really more of a personal choice as in Mimblewimble. wimble
2: Yeah, that's the key point, which is this isn't about the individual instances that have succeeded or failed and how they succeeded or failed. The bigger picture here is that the whole crypto space is an incubator and that incubator keeps spitting out star-shaped things and most of them are spiders but some of them are starfish and every now and then it spits out a starfish and you're like "Whoa, oh, wow it happened again and you think oh it's gotten completely corrupted and this space cannot possibly produce another and then mimble-wimble happens the bottom line is that every now and then something unexpected something unusual Something that looks like everything else, but is fundamentally different in its architecture and its style emerges, and it keeps emerging from this same community.
1: And that's going to do it for today's show, which was episode 428 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks so much for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on coindesk.com, letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course, on the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. This episode was sponsored by Brave.com and eToro.com, with music by Jared Rubens, General Fuzz, and From Ether. Today's discussion featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, me, Stephanie Murphy, and Jonathan Mohan, and a few guest appearances by Adam B. Levine, with editing by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? Send us an